This episode includes descriptions of severe physical and sexual violence. I'll never give more detail than is necessary, but I also think it's important for you to know the extent of the trauma people endure, so you get a good grasp of the whole story, and you can develop a deeper understanding of the individuals involved. Listener discretion is advised. I wrote a blog post on this case way back in October 2019, and since then, the perpetrator of this horrific murder, Lisa Montgomery, was executed. She was the first person to be executed in the United States in 2021, as well as the fourth woman to be executed by the federal government in the history of the country. Her execution thrust this case back into the spotlight, unsurprisingly sparking fiery debate over the death penalty in America. To be more specific, the discourse centered around mental illness and capital punishment. Lisa Montgomery was diagnosed with numerous mental illnesses. Therefore, in my opinion, it was highly unethical to execute her. However, some cite Lisa's planning of the murder, i.e. the premeditation, as being contrary to the claim her lawyers made during her appeal that she was psychotic and out of touch with reality at the time of the murder. Others believe that putting Lisa to death, regardless of mental illness, was the ultimate justice for the victim in this case, Bobby Jo Stinnett, and her family. I'd be really interested to hear your opinions after you've listened to this episode. All I ask is that you acknowledge that we can disagree on issues like this and still be respectful towards one another. I'm your host, Natalie, and this is Talk Murder With Me, Episode 15, The Murder of Bobby Jo Stinnett. I'm by no means an expert on Skidmore, Missouri, but I've always had a bit of a thing for tiny rural American towns. I've got a sort of morbid fascination with how one small town can be subject to so much misfortune. So I wrote blog posts on the bizarre disappearance of 20-year-old Branson Perry, Bobby Joe Stinnett's cousin, and the 1981 murder of the town bully and complete scumbag, Ken Rex McElroy. Desolate, lonely, and unlucky are just a few ways one might describe Skidmore. Located in Nottoway County, in Missouri's northwest corner, Skidmore could once have been an image of quintessential small-town America, but if that image ever did exist, it is now long gone. Nowadays, from what I could tell, residents drive the mostly empty streets, their destinations either church, work, or the gas station. If you personally know Skidmore and you have your own insights, I'd be very interested to hear them. The media has hardly been kind to this tiny Missouri town, but I feel like we never really know the full story when we're on the outside looking in. From the early 20th century to present day, Skidmore's population has fallen by half. Residents began to leave the small, quiet farm town in search of the kinds of opportunities available in larger cities, like Omaha to the north or Kansas City to the south. As of 2019, an estimated 257 people lived in Skidmore. They mainly make ends meet through farming or working in nearby factories. 23-year-old Bobby Joe Stinnett's work was more enjoyable than that of the average Skidmore resident. She and her husband, Zeb, bred rat terrier dogs out of their home. To supplement their income, they also worked at Kawasaki Motors Manufacturing Company in nearby Maryville. 
As of December 2004, Bobby Joe and Seb had been married for about a year, and Bobby Joe was eight months pregnant with their first child. Friends and family described Bobby Joe as kind, quiet, and easygoing. As part of her dog breeding business, Bobby Joe regularly contributed to an internet forum with a group of fellow rat terrier breeders. The name of the forum was Ratter Chatter, and members discussed the ins and outs of breeding, showing, and caring for the dogs. Other members of the group knew Bobby Joe for her sweet and caring nature. They also shared details of their lives outside of dog breeding. Bobby Joe announced to the group that she was pregnant and was expecting her baby in January 2005. Lisa Montgomery, another breeder and dog show participant from Melbourne, Kansas, also announced her pregnancy on the site. Lisa posted that she had been pregnant with twins, but one had died, and that she was due to give birth to the surviving baby in December. Fellow breeders were suspicious of Lisa's claims of pregnancy after seeing photos of her at dog shows, as she never appeared to gain any weight, despite her supposed due date getting closer and closer. Bobby Joe, however, had no reason to be distrusting of Lisa. The two exchanged messages about the ups and downs of pregnancy. She and Lisa actually met at a dog show in Abilene, Kansas, in April 2004. In late 2004, Jason Dawson received an email from a woman named Darlene Fisher. Jason was a breeder of rat terriers and a friend of Bobby Joe's, whom he had gotten to know through dog shows. He was also a member of the Ratter Chatter Forum, on which he had gotten to know Lisa Montgomery. Jason had never met Darlene Fisher before, but it wasn't uncommon for him to receive emails from strangers inquiring about adopting puppies. Darlene asked Jason if he knew of anyone in northern Missouri who had puppies up for adoption, as she wanted to give one to her kids for Christmas. Jason knew that Bobby Joe's female dog had had a litter recently, and the puppies would be ready to go to new homes in time for Christmas. He gave Darlene Bobby Joe's name and her website address, www.happyhavenfarms.com. Darlene emailed Bobby Joe and wrote to her on the Ratter Chatter message board. Her username displayed on the forum was, quote, Fisher for Kids, and she told members of the group that she lived in Fairfax, Missouri, about a 25-minute drive from Skidmore. A message from Darlene to Bobby Joe on December 15, 2004, read, I was recommended to you by Jason Dawson and have been unable to reach you by either phone or email. Please get in touch with me soon as we are considering the purchase of one of your puppies and would like to ask you a few questions. Bobby Joe replied to Darlene later that evening. She wrote, Darlene, I've emailed you with the directions so we can meet. I hope that the email reaches you. Great chatting with you on Messenger and do look forward to chatting with you tomorrow. Thanks. Talk to you soon, Darlene. Bobby. Zeb Stinnett went to work at Kawasaki Motors that day, leaving Bobby Joe home alone with the dogs, awaiting the arrival of Darlene. Nothing felt out of the ordinary to Bobby Joe. Darlene had come across as perfectly friendly when they talked on the forum the previous evening. At around 2.15 p.m., Bobby Joe was talking on the phone with her mother, Becky Harper. She told her that a woman was coming by to look at the puppies soon. 
When Bobby Joe heard a knock on the door at around 2.30, she told her mother that her visitor had arrived and she had to go. This would be the last time Becky would ever speak to her daughter. Bobby Joe answered the door to someone she was not expecting, Lisa Montgomery from the Rat Terrier community. But before she could greet her unexpected guest, Lisa barged in and overpowered the heavily pregnant Bobby Joe. She produced a cord, wrapped it around Bobby Joe's neck, and began strangling her from behind until she stopped struggling. Lisa then pushed Bobby Joe onto her back and with a kitchen knife began cutting open her womb. Once the cut was large enough, she extracted the baby inside. She wrapped the infant, which turned out to be a girl, up in a blanket. She then went back out to her car and drove away, leaving Bobby Joe on the floor, fighting for her life. At 3.30 p.m., Bobby Joe's mom, Becky, came by to see her daughter. She entered the home to find a scene that could only be described as something out of a horror movie. There was blood everywhere. Bobby Joe lay on the ground, unconscious. In her fists, she clenched several strands of long blonde hair. Becky ran to the phone and dialed 911. She explained to the operator that it looked as though her pregnant daughter's stomach had exploded. There was no sign of an infant anywhere. Paramedics arrived almost immediately, but were unable to revive Bobby Joe. She was pronounced dead at 4.27 p.m. It was concluded that the infant was likely alive, given that he or she had been carried almost full term. The baby was likely in distress after enduring such a traumatic birth. The investigation into who murdered Bobby Joe and kidnapped her baby began immediately. Authorities knocked on doors, asking the Stinnett's neighbors if they had seen anything suspicious that afternoon. One resident said they had seen a dirty, old, red car parked in the Stinnett's driveway sometime around 2.30 p.m. They had never seen the car before. Nottaway County Sheriff Ben Espy was determined that an Amber Alert be put out for the missing baby. Usually information on the most basic details like eye and hair color are required, which they didn't have. They didn't even know if it was a boy or a girl. However, around 12.30 a.m. on December 17th, an alert was put out for the missing baby. As the sun rose that day, news of the murdered young mother, whose baby had literally been kidnapped from her womb, spread like wildfire. North Carolina rat terrier breeder Diane Sictar saw the news that morning and recognized the young pregnant woman as fellow dog breeder Bobby Joe Stinnett from Missouri. Diane was horrified by the news of the murder. She had come to think of Bobby Joe as a friend, having had many conversations with her on the Ratter Chatter forum. Diane logged on to the forum. She looked for any clues on the message board as to what might have happened to Bobby Joe. She read the back and forth that had gone on between Bobby Joe and Darlene Fisher on December 15th, in which Bobby Joe told Fisher that she had emailed her her address and directions to her house. Darlene Fisher was meant to be meeting Bobby Joe at her home on December 16th. Diane noticed Fisher's account name, Fisher for Kids, which struck her as creepy. She called the FBI and notified them of her discovery. FBI agents began going through Bobby Joe's emails from December 15th. Sure enough, 
Emails from Darlene Fisher were in her inbox. Their attempts to track down a woman with this name in Fairfax, Missouri, were in vain. The FBI employed computer forensic analysis to trace where the emails from Darlene Fisher had come from. It led them to a modem hooked up to a telephone line at the home of Kevin Montgomery on South Adams Road in Melvern, Kansas. Later on the 17th, at the Whistle Stop Cafe in Melvern, Lisa and Kevin Montgomery showed off the newest addition to their family, a baby girl they had named Abigail. Lisa told friends that she had been shopping the previous day in Topeka, Kansas, when she had gone into labor in a store. She was taken to the Birth and Woman's Center in Topeka, where she gave birth to the baby girl. Lisa called Kevin, telling him what happened and that she needed to be picked up. The couple's friends and family said that the baby was small, but otherwise looked healthy. They had no idea of the terrible ordeal the child had endured. Meanwhile, the FBI agent sat waiting on South Adams Road in Melvern, outside the Montgomery farmhouse, waiting for the arrival of an old red car. Eventually, a dirty red Toyota Corolla pulled up and a man and woman emerged. The woman was carrying a newborn baby. The agents approached the couple, asking if they were Kevin and Lisa Montgomery. They confirmed that they were. Kevin and Lisa went inside, followed by the agents, who proceeded to ask them questions about the baby. Lisa told the same story she had told her friends. However, it wasn't difficult for the agents to catch her out. On telling them that she had given birth at the Birth and Women's Center in Topeka, the agents told her that they had checked with the staff there and there was no record of her having given birth the previous day. Lisa Montgomery broke down confessing to strangling the baby's mother, cutting her from her mother's womb, and kidnapping her. Once Lisa Montgomery had confessed to murdering Bobby Joe and kidnapping her baby, authorities took the baby to hospital in Topeka, where she was reunited with her father. Zeb Stinnett named the baby Victoria Joe, referring to her as a miracle. After a short stay in the hospital, Zeb was allowed to take Victoria Joe home. Despite the trauma that she had experienced, she was doing extremely well. Kevin Montgomery was shocked at his wife's confession, as he believed that Lisa had really been pregnant. Lisa was arrested and charged with the federal offense of kidnapping resulting in death. It was established that Kevin Montgomery was not involved in the murder of Bobby Jo Stinnett or the kidnapping of her baby, and no charges were brought against him. Amongst those who testified at Lisa's trial were her ex-husband, Carl Bowman, her current husband, Kevin Montgomery, Kevin Montgomery's ex-wife, Lori Colwell, and Jason Dawson, who originally referred Lisa to Bobby Joe when she identified herself as Darlene Fisher on the Ratter Chatter forum. Carl Bowman, whom Lisa was in a custody battle with over their four children at the time of the murder, testified that his ex-wife could not have been pregnant because she had undergone tubal ligation surgery in 1990 after the birth of their fourth child. According to Lisa's half-sister, Diane Mattingly, Lisa was pressured by her mother, Judy, into an involuntary sterilization. After her procedure, however, Lisa would fake five more pregnancies, two while she was still married to Bowman. 
He mentioned that the day before Bobby Joe's murder, Lisa had called him, telling him she was going to, quote, prove him wrong, in reference to him previously saying he would expose her lies about being pregnant and would use her deception against her during their upcoming custody hearing. Bowman said to the press shortly after Lisa was arrested, she never was pregnant. Anything they're buying about a lost baby, a miscarriage, all of it is a lie. Kevin Montgomery testified that his wife had claimed to be pregnant three times since they had been married. Each time, he believed her. The first two supposed pregnancies of their marriage had ended with Lisa telling Kevin there was something wrong with the fetus, and she had to have them aborted. However, the third time was different. When he saw Lisa carrying an infant when collecting her in Topeka, he genuinely believed it was their baby. One of Lisa's relatives told Kevin that Lisa was unable to get pregnant because she had undergone tubal ligation surgery, but Kevin said he didn't know what this meant. Kevin's ex-wife, Lori Colwell, testified that Kevin lacked social skills and was very easily manipulated. Lisa Montgomery pled not guilty to kidnapping resulting in death. Her defense attorney, Fred Ducart, made the decision to pursue an insanity defense in an attempt to avoid the death penalty. David Rose wrote a scathing profile of Ducart for the Guardian newspaper. It is titled, Death Row, The Lawyer Who Keeps Losing. Rose writes that Ducart, quote, had more clients sentenced to death in federal court than any other defense lawyer in America. He's part of a deeply flawed system that's about to get worse. Rose explained that Ducart barely put any effort into Lisa's case as he was getting ready for the imminent appeal and retrial of another client. He only visited Lisa three times to discuss her case. When he began to get the impression that Lisa didn't trust men, he sent his wife, Ryland, to try and build a relationship with her. Ryland went to meet with Lisa in prison 16 times, but unfortunately for Lisa, Ryland had no experience with death penalty cases. She had recently trained in horse therapy for autistic children. So Ducart argued that Lisa suffered from pseudosiesis, i.e. a phantom pregnancy, but this defense fell completely flat. He failed to detail the horrendous abuse and torture Lisa suffered at the hands of her mother and mother's boyfriends. This information only came out during her appeal after the verdict was announced. Advocates for Lisa saw this as a massive failing on the part of Fred Ducart. The abuse inflicted on Lisa Montgomery can be described as nothing short of evil. She also suffered from fetal alcohol syndrome as a result of her mother Judy's heavy drinking from the time she was conceived to her birth. Judy was a mentally ill alcoholic who married six times over the course of her life. When Lisa and her sister Diane were young, Judy would beat them daily and punish them by taping their mouths shut or locking them outside in the snow, naked. After their biological father left, Judy began leaving the girls alone with her boyfriends. The two girls would lie in bed together as Diane was raped by these men. Judy was manipulative, and I hate to use this word, but she was evil. She enjoyed torturing the people around her, Diane said. 
She got joy out of it. When Diane was eight and Lisa was four, Diane was removed from the home by social services and placed with a loving foster family. Lisa, however, was left behind. Judy began trafficking Lisa, allowing men to rape her in exchange for handiwork around the house. Judy would later marry a thoroughly disgusting pedophile named Jack Kleiner. Jack, a violent alcoholic, began abusing Lisa when she was 11 or 12. He built a shed on the side of a trailer he owned in the woods in Sperry, Oklahoma, in which he would keep Lisa. It was where he would come to rape and sodomize her whenever he pleased. It was not long before he began inviting his friends to the shed. Lisa learned not to resist Jack's attacks when he slammed her head so hard into the concrete floor that she suffered traumatic brain injury. One time, when Jack was raping Lisa, Judy walked in, but instead of being appalled at what her husband was doing to her daughter, she directed her rage towards Lisa. She rushed into another room and retrieved a gun. When she came back, she pointed it at Lisa's head and screamed at her, How could you do this to me? At just 11 or 12 years old, Lisa began drinking to cope with the torture. Lisa Montgomery is the product of a system that failed her over and over again. Despite the clear abuse she suffered and the dire poverty she lived in, social services only came to check on her once, but nothing would ever come of this visit. Lisa's living hell did not stop at the hands of her carers. Her mother pressured her into marrying her stepbrother, Carl Bowman, when she was 18 years old. Bowman continued to abuse Lisa, regularly beating and raping her. One of Lisa's brothers found a video Bowman had made of himself, raping Lisa. In a statement, he described it as being, quote, like a scene out of a horror movie. I felt sick watching the video. I didn't know what to do or how to talk to my sister about it, he said. Lisa and Carl Bowman would go on to have four children in just five years. The family lived in extreme poverty. They didn't even have running water. Lisa's mental health continued to deteriorate. The Cornell Center on the Death Penalty Worldwide put out a statement about Lisa before she was executed. Lisa's trauma was so severe that it compromised her neurological functioning and development. As a result, Lisa has trouble processing information and navigating social relationships. She struggles to maintain her own hygiene, loses focus during conversations, and has trouble planning simple tasks. Lisa would go on to be diagnosed with a range of mental illnesses, including bipolar disorder, temporal lobe epilepsy, dissociative disorder, and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. David Rose, who wrote the Guardian article I mentioned earlier, wrote that neither the prosecution nor the defense in Lisa's trial examined the relationship between her many symptoms and her history of abuse. At the trial, Fred Ducart argued that his client suffered from the delusional disorder, pseudocyesis, a condition in which a woman's body mimics all the signs and symptoms of being pregnant, but she isn't actually carrying a fetus. Neuroscientists V.D. Ramachandran and William Logan supported Ducart's defense during the trial. They confirmed his claims that Lisa was delusional and likely did have pseudocyesis, as well as depression, borderline personality disorder, and PTSD. 
Federal Prosecutor Roseanne Ketchmark and expert witness for the prosecution, forensic psychiatrist Dr. Park Dietz, strongly disputed the defense's argument that Lisa suffered from pseudosiasis. Ketchmark claimed the defense trying to link the murder and kidnapping to pseudosiasis was some kind of, quote, voodoo science. Ketchmark argued that the murder of Bobby Joe Stinnett was carefully planned and therefore premeditated. She speculated that Lisa kidnapped the baby because she was worried her ex-husband would use her fake pregnancy claims against her in their custody hearing. During the trial, Lisa appeared impassive and unemotional, as if she felt no remorse for the murder. This was largely due to the strong antipsychotic medication she had been prescribed. On October 22, 2007, after just five hours of deliberation, the jury found Lisa guilty of kidnapping resulting in death. Four days later, they recommended the death penalty. On April 4, 2008, U.S. District Judge Gary A. Fenner officially sentenced Lisa to death. David Rose wrote in his article that rather ironically, pseudosiasis was the only relevant condition Lisa didn't suffer from, yet it was the only mental illness Dukert really used in his defense of her. Rose wrote that, quote, The evidence that Lisa Montgomery was a victim as much as a perpetrator should have been overwhelming. More than 12 years later, the U.S. Department of Justice announced that Lisa Montgomery would be executed by lethal injection on December 8, 2020, at the U.S. Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. However, Lisa's execution date was rescheduled to January 12, 2021, after her lawyers contracted COVID-19 when they went to meet with her in prison. Diane Mattingly, Lisa's sister, wrote an opinion piece for Newsweek in the months leading up to Lisa's execution. I'm bruised, but I'm not broken. My sister, Lisa Montgomery, is broken. The federal government plans to execute her for a crime she committed in the grip of severe mental illness after a lifetime of living hell. She does not deserve to die. She continued, the threat of losing her children, combined with the years of untreated trauma and severe mental illness, pushed Lisa over the edge. She went to the home of a pregnant woman, killed her, and removed the baby. Lisa then took the baby home and cared for her as though she was her own. The crime itself shows that Lisa had lost all touch with reality. In a BBC profile of the case, published shortly before Lisa's execution, Diane described looking back to the time when she was removed from the home and still feeling guilty for not telling the social workers who took her away of the true horror that was going on in the house. If I had, would they have taken Lisa out of the home also? Diane said. There's so many people that failed her throughout her life, and I am just asking for somebody once not to fail her. She is not the worst of the worst for whom the death penalty was intended. She is the most broken of the broken. Lisa had all new lawyers for her appeal of her death sentence. They argued that the combination of unrelenting, horrific abuse and her mental illness meant she should never have been sentenced to death in the first place. They believed that at the time of the crime, Lisa was psychotic and out of touch with reality. On January 11, 2021, just hours before Lisa was set to be executed, Judge James Hanlon of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana granted a stay of execution. 
This was based on evidence that she was, quote, unable to rationally understand the government's rationale for her execution. One of Lisa's attorneys, Kelly Henry, argued that her client was mentally deteriorating and therefore an opportunity to prove her incompetence was essential. However, just before midnight on January 12th, the Supreme Court lifted the stay of execution granted by Judge Hanlon, allowing the federal government to immediately proceed with Lisa's execution. On January 13th at 1.31 a.m., Lisa Montgomery was executed by lethal injection. She was 52 years old. Kelly Henry said of the execution, The government stopped at nothing in its zeal to kill this damaged and delusional woman. Lisa Montgomery's execution was far from justice. On that horrible day in December 2004, Bobby Jo Stinnett's family lost a loving daughter, wife, and sister. Bobby Jo would have been a wonderful mother, Becky Harper, Bobby Jo's mother, expressed tearfully. While the rest of the country and beyond debated whether Lisa Montgomery should be executed for the murder of Bobby Joe, the same thing was not true in Skidmore. Those who grew up there and knew Bobby Joe from high school remember her murder vividly. When you live in such a small town and something so unfathomably awful happens to one of your own, you don't forget it. The residents of Skidmore had their minds made up. Lisa Montgomery should die for what she did to Bobby Joe. Nottoway County Sheriff Randy Strong, as well as many of the residents of Skidmore, point to the details of the crime and the amount of planning on Lisa's part as evidence that she was a calculating killer who knew precisely what she was doing. She had bought supplies, including a home birth kit, and she had searched online for how to perform a cesarean section. Sheriff Strong described still being traumatized by the murder scene 16 years later. It upset him even more that it was Bobby Joe's mother who found her bleeding to death. The people that are defending Montgomery, I wish I could take them back in time and put them in that room, he said, and then go, look at this body, and then go, stand there and listen to the 911 call from Bobby Joe's mother. This is the stuff of nightmares. One Skidmore resident described feeling as though Bobby Joe and her family had been forgotten in the debate over Lisa's execution. I think that in a lot of the opinion pieces that are being posted, in a lot of things that people are sharing, Bobby Joe and her daughter, and her mother and her husband and her other friends and family are kind of being forgotten, said Tiffany Kirkland, who was in Bobby Joe's year in high school. Another high school friend of Bobby Joe's, Megan Morrow, said, Bobby deserves to be here today, Bobby's family deserves her, and Lisa deserves to pay. Bobby Joe was laid to rest at Hillcrest Cemetery in Skidmore. Despite the bitter cold, over 400 mourners attended the memorial service. They sobbed and embraced one another as they remembered the sweet, kind-hearted young woman who once smiled and waved at them as she walked her dogs. The day Bobby Joe was ripped from this earth, Skidmore lost one of the few lights it still had left. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review on Apple. And please tell your friends. The links to my social media accounts are in the show notes for this episode. You can follow me on Instagram to see the photos I put up from each case. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me at talkmurderwithme at gmail.com. 
Until next time, friends.